This is the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. I'm Andrew Breskin, the Kosher Sommelier. Each show, we will discover some of the amazing stories and personalities in the world of wine. Wine tasting, wine making, fine dining, and one of my favorite subjects, the wine business. So pour yourself a glass and enjoy the conversation. Welcome, everybody. Um, thank you so much for listening. Wanted to welcome you back to the Kosher Sommelier podcast. This recording I will tell you about in just a minute. But first, um, thank you again for following, for just popping in if you are new to the podcast. I'd really appreciate it if you went onto iTunes, podcast, Google Play, and you would subscribe. That way, you'll always know what we're doing. And you can follow us on Facebook at Kosher Psalm and Instagram, Kosher Psalm, K-O-S-H-E-R-S-O-M-M. And from there, you can always be informed with what's going on. And that way, you can be part of the Kosher Sommelier community. A five-star rating on iTunes would be okay, too, if you felt it was appropriate and deserved. And the highest compliment would be to share the podcast with a friend, a colleague, someone you know who is a wine lover or has an interest in related subjects. We would really appreciate the good news spreading around. Okay, so this was not the first time that I had a very long conversation with my friend Benjamin Kantz of Four Gates, but it was the first time that I recorded it. Um, visited him on the Kosher Sommelier Northern California road trip this summer. Uh, it was a very special day um, for me and having the chance to sit down and really kind of ask questions in, in a structured format, but it's not super structured. As you can tell, we kind of went all over the place, a little um, background information and then uh, personal stuff and business stuff. So it's a little bit of everything. Um, Four Gates is a boutique winery located in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, you can see the Redwood Forests. You can see the ocean. It's one of the most unique uh, microclimates anywhere. And it's it's beautiful. It's tranquil. It's serene. It's inspiring. And um, I think that after you get to listen to Mr. Kantz, you'll have an idea of who he is and why he's chosen to make his life and his his uh, his purpose up there in the mountains, doing his amazing work. So let's uh, let's get into it. I just wanted to apologize. Some of the sound is a little bit funny uh, throughout, and we did our best to clean it up for you, but um, we left a lot of it in because the message and the content was totally worth it. So uh, we're going to keep working on making sure it doesn't happen. But this time it's like, you know what? Just got to roll with the punches. So thanks again for listening. Please follow, like, share, and enjoy the interview. Because when you're first starting out in, in winemaking, it's easy to have your hopes smashed or elevated by every little good thing or bad thing that happens. I said, you never know. You just have to wait and see how things play out. That's can, interesting that you say that because I, I wanted to. I wanted to ask you, I guess, more directly. It, it's it's never the same every year, is it? I mean, the process with ketchup, it is, and mustard, <laughs> but not with grapes. No, 
Oh goodness, no! It just seems like from from our conversation before this and and other times, every year presents like its own. You yeah. Know, every morning you go down to the cellar and it's like, what's happening today? Yeah. No, the uh, if you're if you're um, very conscientious or you keep very good notes, you can go back and you can see based on what the weather was over the course of the season, what effect that. I mean, and, and you and you taste the wines years later, you can maybe start to make some associations about what particular weather pattern produces what particular qualities in the grape. But it takes many, many years to get that kind of information. And then it takes a lot of brain cells to remember it. <laughs> um, but you hear people talk like that. You hear, hear people, old-timers, say, you know, this tastes a lot like the, you know, 05. And 05 was a real cool year and you know, maybe there was a heat spike in the summer or something. But, and early on when I started making wine, I, I, I remembered the vintages and the seasons and I could compare, but after 20, so <laughs> I don't. Do you remember. have any standout years where you remember it like being especially challenging or interesting and, and required a lot more paying attention in the cellar than? I mean, this, the Zinfandel was, a, was definitely an interesting one. Yeah, that was definitely one. The the um, well, one thing, for example, people think that that um, there's a relationship between quantity and quality. People uh, reduce the crop size in the vineyard because because they want to concentrate flavors in the fruit. And in certain vineyards, especially if you start out with a really huge crop. It really pays to do that, I'm sure. This is, is this what's called green harvesting? Um, green harvesting is a version of that. Green harvesting is when you do that and you take off the green, you know, X percent of the crop when it's green. That, that Not only does that remove crop load, but it also removes the least ripe part of the crop load. So it also helps to... Um, to make the the harvest more uniform, um, but some people are dropping fruit without green harvest. They're just going in there and they saying, you know, we want we want to drop twenty percent or something like that. We want to get it from or more. We want to get it from eight tons per acre down to four tons per acre. Drop half of the fruit. Um, but in my case, I. I thought about doing that early on, but it's really not an issue because my crop size is so small to start with on account of dry farming that I never have to drop the crop to reduce the tonnage per acre. But I do I do green thin just to help even out the, the ripeness of the fruit. In order to harvest you know, a given parcel once as opposed to making several passes? Yeah, no, I, I don't make several passes. No, I don't do that. But for example, what made me think of it was the 2013 harvest was the the um, biggest harvest that I've ever had. I got seven barrels of Merlot that year, and normally I'll get, you know, maybe four. In many years I get three, in some years I get more. But it also was one of the best quality years. That's the, the wine that I was just selling this year. 13 is a big, big, bold year for California, most California wines. And, sure. And um, 
and so it was quantity and quality in the same year so it doesn't necessarily prove you know having a smaller crop doesn't necessarily the average age of the vines also plays a factor into the yield doesn't it oh uh, yeah the vines will poop, start to poop out when they get older so and I think they crunch the numbers up in Napa where they're doing things you know uh, much more on a bigger commercial scale they just crunch the numbers and they say we're the productivity has gone down to a point where we're just going to replant the vineyard we, they tear it up and replant it so these vines are approximately what between 15 and 20 years these are planted in 1991 okay so they're 25 27 years old so but for example in a lot of people so for Orla you have to wait the first three years sure in France in certain areas they make you wait seven years they don't even let you maybe you can make wine and sell it without your vineyard designation but you can't use your vineyard de designation in your county or whatever unless it, you follow the rules and sure. one of the rules is seven years in certain locations at least right. I, I believe that to be the case um, but one of the best wines I ever made here, not from my grapes, but fruit that I bought, it was the first harvest of the vineyard. It was, I think it was the fifth year of the vineyard. It was the first time they harvested anything. It was near Gilroy. And, you know. Which one was that? Was that the uh, Syrah? 03 Syrah. 03 Syrah. That one kept forever. It's still going. I have still have... Uh, a couple of models of that. I don't know when to open them. I had, and that wine I had sent off. I have a friend in town who who did math, did statistics for a fellow named Leo McCloskey up in in Napa. He had a a consultancy called Enologics, where they measured all sorts of. In the old days, all you measured was sugar, acid, total acidity, pH. Um, then you could measure a couple of other things if you needed to. That's how you made wine. Then these machines came up to measure phenolics and anthocyanins and, you know, all sorts of different <laughs> things. And he went and started a consultancy where he took all the greatest wines of the world, all French wines and everything, and he measured them and he got the numbers on everything. So he built up a database of numbers. So he then he opened this consultancy. You and you brought him your grapes and he he told you where they fit on the scheme of high on, in quality and in terms of quality in wine and he tells you in terms of winemaking techniques what do you do to bring up this or br bring this down whatever. wow that's kind of freaky it's like reverse engineering to create like right. you know and you could at least I was told this you could bring him a grape and he could tell you how much per bottle to sell the wine for. <laughs> Based on this algorithm. Based on the wine chemistry. Wow. He could tell you whether you had whether you had the stuff or not. <laughs> so but uh, so anyway, so I thought well that would be interesting to do and I, so I thought maybe I should uh, do that. But it you know it like it's like one of those things where you give them a thirty thousand dollar retainer fee. <laughs> so, but but anyway, my friend who does did the math for him, he said, "I'll send some up. He'll 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 you know look at it for you." So my first year, nineteen ninety seven, I gave him a Chardonnay and a Merlot, and he sent it up. A grape. No, a bottle of a wine. A bottle of wine. Yeah, okay. because I was nervous about 
when I when I to put a price on it, I was, didn't want to, you know, I wanted to be realistic, and I had no idea myself of what was realistic. So I got the numbers back, and it was really good. They were surprisingly good. So I went when I went over to his house to get the numbers. He said, "I said, how much should I charge for this?" He said, "Well, I don't know. Let's call him up." So she called up his buddy, and he put the lab lady on the phone and said, you know, what are you supposed to charge for wine like that? She said, well, I wouldn't charge more than, this is 19, so this was around the year 2000, my first vintage. She said, I wouldn't charge more than $40 a bottle for it. <laughs> Did your jaw just hit the ground? It just hit the ground. <laughs> I was planning on charging $26 for it, and that's what I charged for it, $26. And she wasn't even taking in kosher wine as a marketing It issue. was just the, what was in the bottle based on their process. It was... Like, just based on what was in the bottle using their process. Yeah, yeah, just the way the numbers came out. Just, did, they, did they tell you that you have a similar profile to this chateau or this property? Well, I suppose if I'd paid them a little more, they <laughs> might have told me that, but they had the information to do that. So and so and I had this. So I did the same thing with that with that with O three Syrah because uh -huh. I wanted to. I didn't know how much to charge for it, but everybody said it was. This is really good. Um, Jim Roberts over in San Jose. I brought it over for Sukkus. I guess it must have been two thousand five when I was going to release it. And he said, "You have to charge sixty dollars a bottle for it." I said, sixty dollars." <laughs> I hadn't charged anything like that. So I gave it to Marshall, and he set it up, and they came back, and the numbers came off, came up, oh, just off the charts. Wow! So I think so. I sold it for six. It was like he gave, they gave it a ninety-six points on their scale. Wow! Wasn't there like a second release of that wine? Like yeah. So I saved some cases, and then I released it the second year for eighty dollars. Yeah. But but there was only like eight more cases of it. But the last person who bought it bought two cases of it. That was in my pre-allocation days. Uh, yeah, wow. I may wonder if any of it's around. I'm sure it's out there. <laughs> I'm sure it's out there. People are, uh, with the allocations, people are starting to hoard, so. I know, they are. I know. It was you who told me. Or, 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 yeah. Or, or uh, no, we spoke about that. I think, that, uh, people, that people aren't, aren't uh, there's no secondary market for it because nobody's willing to. So. Well, yeah, this this is kind of like almost a part two of uh, of our interview, like the business side of, of wine, and and um, it's interesting, you know, you're mentioning about people, you know, setting prices and people ordering, and you know, historically, I mean, your winery is the only winery in the kosher world and maybe the regular world where people will email you for an order or call you for an order. You'll sell it, send the wine, and then they will pay you. At some point in the future, after they receive it, yeah, it's a. Uh, how did you? <laughs> I mean, have you been asked that before? I, I just, I didn't know anything about running a business. That's all I did. I just put an invoice in the box, and and actually, I've I've started now. Just started actually last night, emailing people who who haven't uh, sent me a check from the beginning of the year <laughs> right how did you get started can you st I, I'm, I'm not sure if Andrew know, I'm, how did you get started in the first place with, with wine and then with wine yeah how did you get started with wine and then the early the early days yeah. Four Gates the early days 
Well, um, two things. There's two main prongs of this barbecue fork. Uh, one was becoming more observant, becoming more religious, and wanting to make my own kiddish wine, just the way people do. People want to make their own stuff. So, and um, and, when, and when was that? And that was that was uh, in nineteen. 1980s, 1983, I think. I made one before that. I used to go over to Gilroy, near Gilroy. I actually, the way I really started was I was driving around there, and somebody who had inherited the, some land that had some grapes actually harvested the grapes into fruit boxes and stored them in his barn, and then put a sign out in front of his yard selling grapes. I mean, people don't do that because who knows how long they're going to last like that. Well, I happened to be driving by and there they were, wine grapes for sale, Cabernet and carrying on. I thought, well, now's the time to start. So Now was as good as any time? You're driving by and yeah. the harvest of grapes just sitting there for you? Yeah. Yeah, just by chance. How long have they been did you, sitting did you, And did you love like wine beforehand? Or was this just like a, I like a wine, I was a sort of a wine drinker, but not. Uh, I wasn't a wine geek, and I wasn't a wine connoisseur, either of those things. Um, I just wanted to make my own wine. And my standards for, for uh, what constituted a successful wine was fairly low. My standard was, if you, you grimaced... <laughs> then it was not good enough. But if you didn't make a face, it was okay. So did you have men mentors and people that taught you how to do it, or were you like, how did you? No, just trial and error. Wow, trial and error. You just uh, there was this uh, old cider press up here that was. Um, I don't know if you've seen them. They've got a grinder at one end, and then a screw press next to it, and a trough underneath both. And you get a little basket with wooden slats and you put it under the grinder and you grind apples and they go into this and then you slide it down and it's just a screw press and you press you get the apple cider and I made apple cider with it and then thought well why not try it with wine, wine grapes not the best idea to grind up wine grapes but anyway that's <laughs> how I started and um, and this I had, I had I knew that this property had been a vineyard back in the 19th century and the grapes had been pulled up during Prohibition. So um, I knew that you could grow grapes here. And a fellow who actually, another fellow who lived up here at the time, who was growing um, marijuana in the bushes, um, had this extra money and he thought he would plant some wine grapes and the owner said okay. And so he planted some wine grapes on the hillside and they did seem to do okay, although he very quickly lost interest in the wine grapes because he was successful with his other project. <laughs> so that's when I that's when I took over uh, growing grapes here. I mean, I just took over those original vines because they were just most of the hillside hadn't survived the heat wave, and so I took care of the remaining vines and make made Chardonnay starting probably in nineteen eighty six, eighty five, or eighty six. And that was wine for yourself to be yeah, used, right? Yeah, that was wine for myself. And um, in 89, I had gotten up to 
13 five-gallon jugs, all of which bumped into each other and broke during the earthquake of 1989. Oh, man. This Prieta earthquake. is only about a few miles as the crow flies from here, like five miles as the crow flies. So, so it was like a... It was like a message from God because if you know if one had survived, then you could sort of get mad and wish more had survived. But with all of them being wiped out, you just thought this is a divine, you know, suck, whatever. Uh, and um, anyway, by then the vineyard was coming back a little bit and was producing more. And then by the time, oh, when was the first batch? I guess '96 was the first batch I put in actual barrels. Up to that point, I just used stainless steel kegs. So it was Chardonnay, Merlot. For Chardonnay, I didn't have 1996. I didn't have Merlot yet. Were you sell, were you selling these? Or you just oh, I did. Yourself? I did. Yeah. No, I didn't sell it. I was a good boy. Most people I know who haven't gone through the legal route don't mind just selling it on the black market because it's such a small scale. Sure. But um, but I didn't do that, and it turned out that that year, the 1996 Chardonnay was one of the all-time best wines from this property. And it's still good, and it's still drinkable. It's getting a little tired, but it, it was just a knockout wine. Just a magical harvest year, or something? Um, don't know. Mm. Don't know. Don't, don't know. I, I had two barrels of it, one American and one French. And then I made a couple of blends of both of them just to see. And the American barrel was preferable. So partly as a result of that, although I continued to experiment in subsequent years, um, I still ferment the Chardonnay in American barrels. I like it better. Mm. It just goes with that kind of, you know, if you're making a French style Chardonnay, I don't think you want to use American barrels. You, you know, if you want a leaner quality without that vanilla. But I was making just an over-the-top California Chardonnay. Big flavors. and Ripe, tropical. Ripe, tropical, not low alcohol. Right. Um, and and uh, the American barrel is suited to that nicely. I mean, I, I, it's, I, I don't taste that much, you know, I don't taste any non-kosher California wine, and my memory of before when I did, I don't remember wines well enough to know, but I was always worried that if I tried to make a leaner, lighter wine, Chardonnay, from these grapes, that it that it wouldn't turn out like a nice French Chablis, it would just turn out like a weaker California white wine. Mm -hmm. So, and I thought, well, this big Chardonnay works so I'll just keep doing that so yeah it seems to be what's working for the vineyards to produce that style yeah yeah so I don't know you know I mean I could I could try to do a lighter one at some point but so the first official four gates vintage was then 1997 1997 what, right. what was four gates how did you figure that the name four gates yeah well before I planted this vineyard I planted another vineyard down in that valley there's a there's a hillside that comes up off of that valley. It was completely wild, not a pasture. Too steep and never been cleared. And I went out there with my youthful enthusiasm and just cleared it. And 
I got, I put in, uh, I didn't put in irrigation, but I put in a water line from a spring on that hillside just by gravity to the vineyard. And I planted just with sticks that I got from a neighbor. You know, you, all you need for planting a vine is just a cutting and you stick it in the ground, but you have to keep it really wet for it to survive. survive. So I did that. And I had these little terraces, you know, like this wide on this so, steep hillside. So you walked, I mean, we're sitting here, we're looking down into the forest over here. So you basically, what, took a machete and just yeah, went chainsaw. down there and, chainsaw. and a chainsaw and created a vineyard clearing? Yeah, cleared cleared the whole thing. How many plants was that? Oh my, I don't, I don't remember. It's not still there, is it? It's still there? It, well, I don't think there are any vines, but, but what I had to do, obviously, was put a fence up because it's the middle of the forest against the deer. So I put a fence up and there were four gates in the fence. So one gate went to where I thought I was going to build a house one day and had did drawings and plans, not, not engineering plans, but sketches. And then I had a gate going to where I thought there would be a little winery, barn. And then I had a gate at the bottom that went into the valley that was... Uh, and then there was a gate at the back in the forest. So in my mind, this was an allegory of life. One was home, work, work agriculture, down below, and then the gate back into the forest you could call whatever... <laughs> No, right. philosophy or chaos or death spirituality or whatever anyway so I named it four gates just casually and then years later when I planted this I mean I had no idea I was going to be going into business doing this but when I did I thought well I'll keep the same name why not it's a good allegory and then since then all of the four gates is uh, the four gates is grew so every every uh, dimension, four-sided four dimension in Yiddishkeit, in Judaism, that um, related to spirituality became one of the four gates, or, or, I mean, became another version of the four gates. So all of the fours of Pesach, um, the four cups, the four sons, the four, the four uh, letters of God's name, the Yamavikade Matsafonavid Negba, the four directions, the four the four sides of Avram's tent. The the um the, there's a something called a mem the mem of Mashiach. Did you ever hear this expression? The mem of Mashiach? I no, I'm not familiar. It's like a mem sofit, so it's got four <laughs> sides to it. Um so anyway, no, no shortage of uh, allegorical. No uh, shortage of, of additions, except it's it's kind of awkward to explain the whole story, and it doesn't really fit into a classical explanation. So I haven't, I didn't even write it up on the website. I didn't say well what the four gates were. Sure. So I just have, wait for people to ask me, and then I I tell them what it means. But so you start. That's really great. So you started, and then it was a shard name Merlot, and. How'd, yeah, so you, how'd you get the word out? I mean, <laughs> there wasn't a... First, first out, and I picked Chardonnay, Merlot, Pinot Noir, and Cabernet Franc. I picked Pinot Noir and Chardonnay because at the time, that was the, those were the only grapes that anybody would recommend for the Santa Cruz Mountains. It was considered... I can see the ocean from here. And it was considered that this is a cool climate uh, site. And the only 
varieties that were thought to be successful in a cool climate site like this were Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And at the time, that was all anybody had growing here. I wanted to try something else, and I asked around, and I couldn't get confirmation on anything. I heard about Viognier and was tempted to plant that, but didn't know anything about it. Um, I actually called Randall Graham and asked him what he thought of Syrah, because Syrah, he was a big Rhone, Rhone guy, and he said he thought it might work in the Santa Cruz Mountains, but you would have to uh, you would have to reduce the crop. It, it, he, he said it produces a lot of fruit and you have to it's quite abundant and yeah, yeah you'd have to reduce it but on a non-irrigated site like this probably wouldn't have been an issue I still you know I grafted over some of the Chardonnay because I planted a lot of sh too much Chardonnay a long time ago and I should have grafted over a bunch of it then I didn't and I thought about grafting it over to, to Syrah but I still didn't know whether it would get warm enough here for Syrah I don't know Gabe Weiss from Shiro Wines, you know, he's he's a big um, fan of Syrah, and they make a variety of Syrahs, so they sure. make a cool climate Syrah and a warm Cote Roti Syrah, depending where they get the, the fruit. But, uh, I don't know, my one experience of Syrah from Gilroy, I, I guess it was pretty warm over there because that was a big wine, and I... Right. I didn't really know enough about cool climates at all, and I didn't feel like experimenting, so I, I didn't. So then it was down to more of the more noble varietals, Cabernet Merlot. And yeah, so then I asked around about Merlot. Merlot was becoming, you know, in 1991, it was catching on. And, uh, but nobody, I couldn't find anybody. I found one person who had, had planted Merlot up in the Santa Cruz Mountains and didn't have good luck with it. I couldn't find anybody else who had experience with growing it and making nice wine out of it. But it ripens earlier than Cabernet Sauvignon, and that was, since this is a cool climate, I was worried about planting Cabernet. Of course, everybody wants to plant Cabernet, but I thought this might be too cool a site for Cabernets. I never had a Davis number, you know, in those days, I think they still now measure degree days. So there's certain varieties you plant in areas that have a certain number of degree days. Mm -hmm. So without that number, I didn't know what would likely do well here. So since Merlot ripened uh, sooner than Cabernet Sauvignon, I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And it turns out it works out great. It work, makes, a, makes a good wine in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Had you gone to, did you go to school after like how did you develop no your it just it's trial and error really I went to I did take a Davis has a in addition to having fabulous viticulture uh, you know enology school they the university extension do, does these you know two-day workshops so I took I took a couple of those mm -hmm. in the process um, and um, in the early years basically the yellow pages I would just call up the local wineries, I'd say, you know, what do you do when this happens? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> no, and, and, you, and you have to get the right size winery. If you get someplace that, you know, very efficiently, efficient and maxed out, everybody's busy all the time. But you get just larger than that, where they've got, you know, somebody sitting at a desk. They're not doing anything anyway. And they're happy to, uh, they're happy to help you. The Santa Cruz Mountain Vintners, as a rule, at least this certainly was the case when I started out, 
they're more um, there's more camaraderie than competition. They're not it, Santa Cruz Mountains is such a small viticultural uh, spot that it's they're sort of teaming up against the rest of the world. They're not fighting each other. There's not them. really enough to production to compete with your neighbor. Yeah, so they're so they're they're it's a pretty cooperative, pretty muddy bunch, of, and they're all fairly small. They're no huge. I mean, Bonnie Dune was gotten did get very big actually at one point before he split it up and sold it off. But other than that, there no the 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 geography isn't suited to it. There's just n not enough flat land to grow lots and lots of grapes. So it's most of the wineries in Santa Cruz Mountains are fairly small. I mean, people obviously bring in sure fruit. There's there's not enough grapes in the Santa in Santa Cruz County to supply the Santa Cruz Mountain win uh, wineries, but. And, and then with the kosher, the component of it being kosher, so would you just doing it for yourself? Or then when did you decide it was time you want to bring in like an actual... So that, so 90, uh, 1997 was my first batch, but obviously you have to make all the arrangements ahead of time. So I, I, I called around, I, I spoke to several rabbis and found, uh, they come out and you know, study the site and look at you. I think the winemaker is the most important part of the right. kosher wine process. The rest of the ingredients, you have to have an ingredients list, you know. So anyway, I decided, and then when I planted Merlot, somebody said, well, are you planting Cabernet Franc? And I said, hadn't thought of it. And they said, well, you should plant Cabernet Franc if you're planting Merlot, because the French blend. So I didn't know anything about Cabernet Franc, so I planted, I got some and planted it. And then uh, early on, I I did blends. I still do them, and uh, I didn't really think it was a good blend for me for my particular grapes. So I I don't normally blend the Cabernet Franc and the and the Merlot together. Mm -hmm. But um, but I plant but the the Chardonnay that I grafted. This year, I grafted it over to Cabernet Franc, and I discovered I made a Cabernet Franc from somebody else's grapes in 2013, up on Montebello Road, up by Ridge, and it was so different than my Cabernet Franc. My Cabernet Franc, I mean, I don't know what Loire Valley Cabernet Franc tastes like. I've never had any. Yeah. Um, but my guess is that it's more like my Cabernet Franc because it's a more perfumey, lighter wine. Right. This Cabernet Franc from Montebello was a completely different wine. It was full, yeah. full-bodied wine, and I had no explanation for it. I didn't really know, know what happened, what could have happened. It, it didn't seem to me that the site was that hot or that different, but I discovered this year when I went to get some budwood to graft with that they've started in, I can't, I don't remember what year it is, but they're importing f different French clones of Cabernet Franc, and some of them are bigger than others. Mm. In, and uh, clearly, this is what happened. This was a, so anyway, so the clone that I got, I wasn't able to find anybody who could describe the wine that came from different clones, but, uh, but it seems like so I, I'm not sure what I got, but I got a clone that 
had a very good reputation, but I don't know what style that reputation. And so then you ended be. up with Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Merlot, Merlot and Cabernet Franc. Front. Yeah. So then when I decided to branch out a little bit, I got Syrah and then... Purchase, I, purchase grapes. Purchase grapes. And then I got Cabernet Sauvignon. And then I've gotten Zinfandel and Petit Syrah. And then last year I got some Malbec. Just to keep things interesting? Just to, exper- the, just to keep things interesting and to experiment? Well, or, um, or some, yeah. Yeah, and also to supplement a portion, a couple, in addition to that part of the Merlot that was going bad, there was a part of Chardonnay down below that was very difficult to get to and very gif- difficult to get care of, and I sort of abandoned that section. So, so I had room for more varieties. So, so that's why it—it it was basically you were just gonna try out winemaking, try out the business, and see what happens. You mean my my business plan? The original business plan. The original business plan was yeah. One day at a time. One day at a time which most people don't have the luxury of doing. Planting the vineyard was a, a big risk. I mean, somebody has to take care of the vineyard and you have to... You have to wait years for it to come online. Right, right. So. And, uh, yeah, so... So you were all in. I was, I was all in, <laughs> right, exactly. I'm still all in, but I'm going to have to figure out a way to, to uh, creep out slowly because it, it's getting harder and harder to juggle wine barrels. Right. It's uh, and to go out there on the hillside. I've got, found somebody to help me spray. I tore my ACL a couple of years ago and my Achilles tendon a couple of years before that. And so I'm not really great on the hillside. It's with a the, little rugged out there. I yeah. Gotta say. Yeah. The backpack actually, even a 60 pound backpack, is not that bad if you're on flat ground. Sure. But the but when the you know I've got gophers all over the place and dogs digging up gopher holes make even bigger pits and so it gets pretty it's a minefield out there yeah it gets pretty rough so the holes in the ground combined with a 60 pound pack and your center yeah. of gravity being a little bit off because of you know the angle right it could be pretty treacherous yeah in, uh, it could be. the vineyard could be but the gophers on the other hand are cultivating my vineyard for me <laughs> little uh, delegation there yeah, as long as they don't kill the vines, I've been very tolerant of them. They don't eat the fruit, do they? No, no. And uh, so I've been tolerant, but I am getting the feeling that they are reducing the vigor of the vines. By chewing their, yeah. the roots away? Yeah. It doesn't, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell, but uh, it feels like <coughs> the vigor, vigor is going down. So. Anyway, so the the um, this year I oh I made Petit Verdot one year also. And that's what I was looking for this year. I was looking for some Petit Verdot grapes. Not yeah. too not too far away. That's a fun varietal. Yeah, you can. It's a you. Can, it's very. It's sort of tricky. When it was in the barrel the first time, I could really see why it's used mostly as a blending grape because sure. it it's not. It, it 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 depends on a variety of you know some variables, but uh, it's not necessarily a hundred percent whole thing, and it likes to be blended, I think. With uh, but the t- the ones that I bottled, in the end, they came around and they were really nice on their own, and I didn't 
really end up blending anything in with them. I find them to be I find them to be like a like a single note, but it can yeah. be a very loud and pleasant single note. Yeah. But it's not very Yeah, not complex. Right. Not a big yeah. spectrum of flavor. Right. I think that's I think that's accurate. So you're basically on your thirtieth, thirty first Four gates harvest at this point. Oh no, harvest! I'm, I'm twenty, on the twentieth. Twentieth. Yeah, I did the the twentieth was probably last year. So last I'm probably year. on the twenty-first. So what's the plan for the next twenty harvests? Twenty harvests. Well, uh, as per my past plan, <laughs> <laughs> there is none. <laughs> Whatever. If a, if a uh, you want to use your podcast as a, an advertising forum for young young men to call me up and see if they want to learn uh, the trade of winemaking and yeah, sign us up. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you, you have any desire to grow grapes? Yes. I think I mean this would be a great you know a great thing for me. Really? I can't speak for uh, my wife and children, but uh -huh. I'd be happy to be a man of the forest and uh -huh. go down as as uh, infrequently as possible. Uh -huh. That's a that's a personal uh, feeling. Yeah, yeah um, no families and uh, I, community and I, uh, education yeah. and there. I do have some other responsibilities that might keep <laughs> me away from doing that. Right. But my ultimate plan would be to. Uh, it's a very different thing. The people who make wine aren't don't necessarily like to to uh, to to grow to go out into the vineyard. No, I I happen to enjoy. I mean, personally, I just I happen to enjoy. You know, we do some backyard uh, amateur mm -hmm. agricultural outside. Uh, my personal passion project has historically been potatoes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, nice. Which I've been mostly unsuccessful with. Oh. But uh, I haven't given they, up. They like the right kind of soil, obviously. They need. Apparently, backyard San Diego soil is not the not most yet. typical for potato growing. Yeah, they like sandier. Yeah. So I've done, I've experimented with... Uh, you know, different different types of soil in, uh, you know, 50 in pots, yeah. garbage cans. Yeah, yeah. right. And uh, so, you know, after three months of growing with a, a really nice canopy, you know, yeah. my, my kids and I will dump out the trash bin yeah. and dig around and see what's there. Usually it's not much, but sometimes we can, uh, you know, at least make um, a side dish for a Shabbos meal if we don't have any guests, then we'll have enough uh, just for a taste. <laughs> but uh, no, my biggest potato was probably you know five or six ounces. I mean, you know, not. Oh my. Well, maybe you didn't wait long enough. Maybe you have to. You know, you, you only wait for so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not true when you have a large scale operation. You, it's it's like well, I don't want to. Um, you do what you're told. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, the natural world is what dictates uh, certainly and the work in the vineyard is actually much more difficult than the work in the winery I'm sure that's the difficult part but and most people don't do it Jonathan obviously Gabe Shimon these guys don't have their own vineyards but they're working on a way way bigger scale than I am but but in terms of job satisfaction uh, you can't beat it to be able to to be able to follow the trajectory of your whole operation from the very beginning through the harvest and the winemaking. Yeah. No, <coughs> my time in France is kind of showing the same thing where, you know, the people who are making the wines are the same people who grew up with their grandparents, parents, uncles, 
farming those vineyards and taking care of them and yeah. knowing each individual vine and and um you know sometimes you'll get a vineyard of it's like 95 percent one varietal and you'll have like a cabernet franc vine in the middle of a merlot because you know one vine died they pulled it up and they just grabbed something <laughs> from somewhere else and just popped it in and you you have like that you know family history oral history of, of yeah. how a certain vineyard was always managed or how it came to be yeah and uh there's something special about that that definitely appeals to me yeah uh, yeah all the, the those in california there are those field blends and yeah. sure sure i mean we don't have too many of these triple digit uh uh, aged vineyards, but uh, when it, the where I got uh, Zinfandel in 2011, there were clearly other vines scattered. In the, he said, "Do you want those or not?" I said, "I, I don't. I just want the Zinfandel because I had no idea what the other ones were." Right. And sometimes people would plant field blends because they they wanted the blend out there, and sometimes it was as you as you described, just a serendipity and who knows what it was and so i mean in uh, california you might get you know carignan charbonneau um all kinds of just random stuff that right. you know and right. uh, columbard all the pro pre-prohibition varietals that yeah. um gamay of uh gamay beaujolais mm -hmm. that stuff mm -hmm. so yeah. all kinds of cool stuff yeah i know the mountains are, it's a fun place and it's really yeah it's really magical yeah, no, it's it's um, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a very, a very, uh, can't be beat. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, the the um, the the scale of you know the the interesting thing is, I've been following this. I in it, when I first started out, there were articles written about you know another the way you write. A, a piece about a new kosher winery so in Jewish journals and various things and I was never accused of being a ga ga garagist <laughs> and I could easily have been probably because n nobody came out here and looked to see about my operation and it's it's a term that I don't know about right now but at the time it's slightly pejorative slightly Almost like an imposter, like an or an amateur, at least yeah, an amateur, and um, so it was a sort of it was a sort of a word that I was sort of slightly in dread of <laughs> having applied to me. But the reality is that my winery isn't that much bigger than a garage, and I could easily have had that word subscribed to me. And it's also turned out that innovation in garages is a Northern California thing. <laughs> not just, <laughs> not, just not just garage bands, <laughs> right. but you know, right. all the various Silicon Valley guys, you can go on a tour of their various suburban garages yeah, where... Yeah, more of them started in garages than started in universities. <laughs> right. But also, I, I think that garage winery is not necessarily something that applies to someone who grows a state fruit. Yeah. Right. It's more maybe of like, that's, you know, maybe that's true. you purchase something. I know like in Bordeaux, you know, they would be purchasing, um, buy, purchasing fruit from perhaps underutilized properties that would otherwise make the wine and blend it away in bulk mm -hmm. and say, no, we can probably make something better if we just buy yeah. these guys' grapes. And, right. and that was the culture. Well, that was, that was Kermit Lynch. That was his, that was his innovation right. in the 1970s where he, he would just knock on these doors and and ask these guys 
why they didn't make their own wine, why they just dumped it in the negotiants' uh, tanks. And he got them to bottle their own and sold it for them, and it turned out to be a... But what made me think of it is that some of these vineyards, like in Burgundy, they get passed down from generation to generation. They get divided up so that some of the holdings, even if they're on excellent hillsides, are tiny. Yeah, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. They just, yeah. You know, they just like two rows of Pinot Noir, right? Like and you get your, you make your barrel of wine, or you have to. I mean, if you have like a row and a half, you're going to have to um, uh, collaborate with uh, your neighbors uh-huh. and right. uh, split the uh, production. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. pretty wild. Yeah, so small scale is a like the world is divided on the the um, viability and quality of small scale. So if you if you market it right. It's a very big win, and if you somehow get shelved, <laughs> uh, it's it's a uh, yeah, it's a big uh, handicap. Yeah, I was having this I was having this conversation with somebody about uh, true scarcity versus perceived scarcity, and you, know, you only get one shot with uh, marketing scarcity, because if it's scarce and you sell out in quotes, right, but then you still happen to have a whole cellar full of wine, you know. Any other time you try to market scarce in the future, you'll have that shadow over you. Uh-huh. And so, you know, having yeah. been down to your cellar uh, in the past, you know, you can see. I mean, you know, when you sell out, there's nowhere for the wine to hide. It's no. gone. No, that's right. That's right. I think that one time with the O3 Syrah, and then one other, I kept back a few cases just to see if it would improve, right. and I could re. Uh, re-release it um, so a lot of wineries do that I don't know what the protocol is for raising the price on things like that it seems to me not very nice to raise the price during the season but maybe if you if you use up your yearly allocation and you re-release it maybe it's more I think that you're right I mean the market will definitely let you know if the if it's too high, you know. Uh huh. But in your in your line of work, you you just have a free reign. You pay for the wine, and then you can charge whatever you want for it. Um, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I can charge whatever I want, but there's there's definitely, you know, with the with the French wines, different vintages are going to have different price points, right. and then we have the extra factor of currency exchange. Which is not always um, considered by the the European winery. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are the uh, more complicated. These are the, the considerations that go into. You want to have you know you you would endeavor to have a, a fixed markup over time, but sometimes you have to be flexible. Uh-huh. You know, there's always going to be a new vintage. So uh-huh. you know, this vintage we're going to have to uh, you know go the leader on. Then that's fine. And then we'll hopefully, you know, get back into our model the next year. Mm-hmm. You know, if we promise something at a certain price, then we deliver at that price. Uh-huh. And then if we have to eat it, you uh-huh. know, we, obviously there's a lot of hedging and, you know, I'm not a currency trader, uh-huh. but I have to, when I can, be smart about it. Mm-hmm. But it's, I'd rather not. <laughs> uh-huh. If I wanted to be a, you know, one of those uh-huh. guys, that's what I would have done. So. Uh-huh. It's pretty complicated. Well, the, all these barrels are left over from last year. These aren't. I didn't just get these. These mm-hmm. are. The, there was that um, heat spike 
Did I tell, was I telling somebody else this morning? I just didn't tell you about the heat spike. The, the Labor Day heat spike last year was uh, 107 on Friday and 100, nearly 111 on Chavez. Wow. And the highest, hottest it had ever been before then was maybe 101 or 102. And if you have irrigation and you load up the ground ahead of time, the, the vines can can survive that. But 111, the second day, um, I lost my whole Merlot crop. It just it just cooked, literally just cooked. You know, nothing left, zero. Wow. I went out there when we were crushing the cabinet. I thought, well, I'll go out for sentimental purposes. I'll go pick out, you know, I'll go pick one box. I can find one box out there. I went out there. I couldn't find one cluster of grapes. They the were grapes just, had exploded. Or no, they just, just dried like, up. Just they just they cooked and then dried up. And they weren't even sweet enough yet. By September, early September, the Merlot wasn't sweet enough, so they weren't not even raisins. So there's no 17 Merlot. There's no 17 Merlot. Wow. Nothing. But fortunately, I uh, I the 13 was big enough that I sold it over two years. So that kept me. That'll right. fill in the year, <laughs> but I'm already a couple a year or two behind. This wine for this next year is going to be 2014, so right. I'm still. But my wines tend to need the age anyway, so it's not like not like it's a problem. Sure. So why don't we just call it like one last question, and then we can we'll uh, we'll pause there. But <laughs> okay. What What would you say is what do you need to be successful? in the wine business. If you were giving advice to someone, if you were starting over today, what what would you feel in the kosher wine world is the most important ingredient? Well, um, obvious, that a question? obviously the market is, a, is a, an important question, but even before the market from the winemaking standpoint, I would say um, scale of operation is the first thing. You have to get that right. So, for example, I had to do everything myself ever since I started because there aren't any Shomer Shabbos Jews in Santa Cruz. So I didn't have any help around here. Um, and it turned out I, I set it up so that I could do everything myself. There wasn't, except picking the grapes, I need a team to pick the grapes, but as far as moving, you know, moving boxes and getting crushing them, everything, moving barrels around, stacking barrels, I rigged up little ways of getting everything done so I could do it myself. So, and I don't pay myself, so I'm cheap labor. So, <laughs> so you have to figure out in terms of capital expense for, for equipment, um, and also whether you need to, whether you can, and can afford to hire people to help you. So, so you have to figure out what scale of operation is the most efficient scale to operate on. So, um, I would say that's pretty important. And then marketing, you have to find out. You have to know where um, the wine drinkers live. <laughs> so, but did you ever think that you have one of the most highly sought after and now allocated? And now you sell it every single year. Was that? Did you ever imagine no. to this point? No, no, I never dreamt of that. Just not even because I wasn't thinking of it. You know, as I say, when I started out, I was making it because I wanted to make 
kiddish, kiddish wine, and that really, I never shifted into a, some kind of business model. You're My brother, who is a businessman, yelling at me all the time, <laughs> you're, this, you're not running this like a business. I said, well, you know. <laughs> Are you still in your own mind just making kiddish wine every day? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. When you have, you know, X number of barrels, it's not it's more than just... Uh, <laughs> But but yes, but but on the other hand, I would say yes because the I don't know for sure how many religious Jews are on the list of people who buy wine, but it's most mostly because why would you go out of your way to buy kosher wine if you didn't have to? So most of the people who are buying, I mean, I don't know about the other kosher wineries whether they sell mostly to religious people or not, but um, so yeah, so from that. From that perspective, yes, I'm selling wine for Shabbos and Yantov all the time. I mean, that's you know, I'm saying uh, I'm saying Lekavet Shabbos as I'm working in the vineyard and while I'm working in the in the winery. In fact, Josh said it when he was making wine in South Africa in March. He went during the crush or something. He was working with another fellow over there, and he said Kevin Chavez and the guy just sort of made fun of him. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, that's how I learned to make wine. <laughs> exactly. That's what he said. <laughs> well, thank you again for hosting us here today. Well, you're, you're welcome. I hope I and hope it was something of interest. Definitely. And um, look forward to next time. All right. Thank you, everybody. Not to make this long recording a little longer, but at the same time, it just shows you that, you know, even when, you know, if you have a wine that you like or that you're kind of okay on, once you even get to know the story and the people, it can really give a little extra depth and understanding to the journey of that winemaker and how that wine gets into the bottle and, and really the intentions and the and the energy that goes into making such a product. And that's one thing that I picked up from the uh, Kosher Sommelier Northern California road trip over the summer was just the people who are really putting their heart and soul into this process. And especially here in Four Gates um, with Mr. Kant, it's, it's very evident that his, his whole self is going into the wine. And, you know, it really provides an extra layer of appreciation um, for his efforts and for the wine that is produced. So I really hope that you enjoyed the interview and uh, you'll join us for the next one. Please come on uh, Facebook or Instagram, Kosher Psalm. Check us out. Send me an email, andrew at koshersom.com, uh, andrew at koshersom.com. Happy to have you there and catch you on the next one. Thanks for listening to the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram where you can be part of the Kosher Sommelier community. That's Kosher, S-O-M-M. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.